We have a tendency sometimes to make spiritual things sound more complicated than they really are. I don't know if it's because we think the more complicated it sounds or the more difficult it sounds, the, the more spiritual it makes us because we understand it. But for whatever reason, we tend to, to make things sound hard. We, we like to put spiritual truths into some kind of math equations. And I know I've been down on math the last couple of weeks and uh, talked about history and talked about English. And, uh, but we do try to put spiritual equations into, into math equations. We say, if you do this and you do this and you do this times this, then this is going to happen. It's an algebra expression, right? God bless you, algebra people. I just used it in my life. So that's the first time in 35 years. I used algebra in my real-world experience, but that's algebra, right? A uh, times C equals E, and we do it every day. We say that if you do this and you do that and you do that, then you'll have a good marriage, or then you won't worry about things, or then you'll be more victorious in your life. And somehow we've created steps or a process that the Bible was never intended to to do. The Bible wasn't written to be applied in that way. It wasn't written to be read that way. And you see, what happens is we've taught ourselves, and, and preachers are the worst, that somehow if we say certain words or we do certain steps, then God has to respond the way we want Him to respond. It's kind of like we've made God a genie, and He's up in heaven, and He's waiting for us to say exactly the right magic words, and then He's going to respond. Or, or He's waiting for us to follow through on these steps. And, and, you know, we get step one and two and three, and, and we don't see anything happen, and God's up in heaven saying, oh, well, you didn't get to step five. The preacher clearly gave you five steps, and so I'm not going to bless your marriage. I'm not going to bless the things that you do. And we walk away frustrated. Because we think that that's what Bible truths are about. Instead of understanding the principle behind it, instead of understanding what God is trying to put on our heart, we, we memorize application steps. We memorize words that we think somehow are going to be magical to make everything okay. We've made it difficult. And pastors don't help. We, we probably make it worse. I mean, think about some of the sermons that you've heard pastors use. We say things like, how you can discover the secret to this, right? Or unlocking the mystery of whatever it is. Or six or seven steps to a better marriage or to be debt-free. Whatever it is, we, we use language that makes it seem like what we're trying to get you to do is difficult. But the gospel is very simple. The idea of what Jesus calls us to as followers of Christ is very plain, very easy to understand. But we make it hard. I mean, even the title of my sermon, I guess I'm not doing myself any favor. God's will reveal, right? Like I'm going to reveal something this morning that's a secret. I'm going to reveal something that's been hidden. All of a sudden, you're going to get to hear something that you've never heard before. Well, the bad news is, is I'm not. I'm not going to reveal anything new. Matter of fact, God's will is not something that's a secret. It's not even something that's hidden. It's not even something that's hard to find. Matter of fact, it's very clear and it's very obvious in the Word of God. See, God's Word is not hard. It's not hard to understand. The truths and the principles that we find in this book, they're not complicated. Most people, when you talk about understanding God's will, it's one of those things that we have made so much more complicated than it needs to be. It's 
one of those things that we make it hard. Matter of fact, if I was to ask you to lean down your row and ask the person next to you, the person sitting on your row, how do you find God's will for your life? You would probably get five or six different answers, wouldn't you? Everybody would say something different because we in church have confused the whole picture of what God's will is and how He wants to live our lives. We, we know that He has a purpose for us, but we don't know how we discover it. You see, some people think finding God's will is, is like a cosmic Easter egg hunt, right? God takes His will for our lives and He hides it all throughout our lives and, and we go through life trying to search for it, right? Don't look at me like you're spiritual. You do it, right? We're, we all walk through and, and we're like, okay, maybe it's over here and maybe I'm supposed to go over here and I better go back to church on Sunday because the preacher, he'll get up and say, hotter, 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 right? Cold, cold, cold. Go there. And so it's an Easter egg hunt. Or, or some of us think of it, it's kind of like a, a pin the tail on the donkey, right? I mean, that's how we live sometimes. It's like God blindfolds us and he spins us around and he says, okay, find it. And we're clueless. We get confused in trying to understand what it is. See, some of us use the old tried and true method of the Bible finger pointing, right? God, I'm trying to make a decision. Let me see. Right? doesn't work that way. Or some of us look at other people's lives and we see them and we say, maybe that's my will. Maybe, maybe what they're doing is what God wants me to do. And other people think that the way to find God's will is you sit in a quiet room all alone and, and you're real quiet and you're real still and you wait for a sign from God, right? All of us have done it. God, if you really want me to go out with this girl, have the phone ring. <laughs> right? You do it. God, if I'm supposed to take this job, then let lightning strike or let somebody walk in the door right now. We test God. And we try to think that maybe somehow through those supernatural things that, that God is going to show up. Some people think that finding God's will is based in absolutes. We think God only has one will, and if we miss it, then we're in trouble. I've heard people say that, you know, God, and people ask, when, when my wife and I got married, we've almost been married 30 years, I say, well, uh, was God's will for you to get married? Yes. Is she the one that God wanted to get married to? I know now, yes. I didn't know 30 years ago, because God doesn't just have one person for you. Some people think that's the way life is, and, and I see so many people frustrated saying, you know, I'm trying to discover who God wants me to marry, and what happens if they marry somebody else, or what happens if I miss them, and my whole life is going to be lived apart from God's will, right? Or I'm trying to find God's job for me, because if I take the wrong job, and all of a sudden the right job is over here, then I'm going to be miserable in the wrong place. That's not the way it works. Let me just clear it up real quick for some of you that are single. God's will is either that you marry or you don't marry. That, the Bible's clear. Either you marry or you don't marry. And if God's will is that you get married, you know what happens? As you trust God and as you follow His will, as you follow His word, and, and you do the things that God calls you to, God brings people into your life, and He will bring somebody into your life who it is His will that they get married, and all of a sudden you begin to develop a relationship and as you develop a relationship, that becomes God's will that you marry. And as you grow together, you look back and say, that's God's will. I can prove that it was God's will that she and I or he and I got married. 
It's not a matter of absolutes. But whatever you think about God's will, whether it's Easter egg hunt or pin the tail on the donkey, most of us, when we think about God's will, we think about bad things, don't we? We think following God's will is always going to include a sacrifice. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to think, what does God want for my life? Well, of course, he wants me to sell everything, not have fun, and move to Africa, right? Live in a hut somewhere. Because that's where we automatically go when we think about God's will. Surely God's will is, is, is for me not to have any fun. He, he, he wants me to go and do something that I don't want to do. But the Bible says it could not be further from the truth. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you the secret of my sermon before I even get into it. And I want you to hear this and hear it well. It is always God's will to reveal His will to anyone willing to do His will. It is always God's will to reveal His will to anyone willing to do His will. You see, the good news is none of those things are correct about following God's will. And the better news is that finding God's will for your life is not difficult. Matter of fact, I want you to hear this. God wants you to know His will more than you want to know His will. Because God's greatest desire is for you to experience life in the middle of His will, doing exactly what He's called us to do. And I'm going to show you how that works by looking at Romans 12. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Romans 12. We've been digging down and drilling down in Romans 12, 1 and 2. My plan going into this about a month ago was to preach one message on Romans 1 and one message on Romans 2 and then to move on. And here I am, this is the third message and we're still just in Romans 2. Because there are so many incredible truths in in these two passages that help us understand how God's calling us to live. uh, How God unlocks the power of the Holy Spirit in our life when we trust Him. And if you missed it, go listen to our podcast because we go in depth in Romans 1 and Romans 2. And this morning, we're just going to pick up at the end of Romans 2, the last part of it, the last sentence. If you take notes, it would be Romans 12 2b, the second part of it. But... You can't take it by itself because in context, all of it is one thought. All of it is is one idea that God is trying to get across. And so I'm going to read back one and two, and I'm not going to explain it. Go back and listen to the message. Uh, But we're going to pick up at the end. But you've got to hear the start before you can get there. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, and this is where we're starting, and if you have a Bible and you take notes in your Bible, I want you to circle then, because then is the key phrase to the whole, key word to the whole passage. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, when we talk about God's will, usually in the church, you deal with one of four aspects of God's will. In the Bible, when it talks about God's will, it talks about four different things. And you need to identify those things so when you're reading Scripture, you can know what it's talking about. And the first will that it talks about in in God's Word, when it means will, it means God's heart, God's desire, what God wants, is the idea of God's providential will. God's providential will. That's called God's sovereign will. That is the thing that uh, has happened or will happen that we have no control over. It is the heartbeat of God. God created the world apart from anything we say, think, or do. That was God's sovereign will. 
God sent Jesus Christ as a plan of salvation because that was his heartbeat. That was his sovereign will. Nothing could change God's will. His sovereign will, and, and most of the time, we can't see God's sovereign will until it's revealed in history. We know it's God's will, his sovereign will, that Jesus is going to come back someday. But we can't do anything to make it happen faster. We can't do anything to happen slower. We can't know the time. We can't know when. We just know it's his sovereign will. So sometimes when the Bible talks about his will, it's talking about his sovereign will as revealed in history. The second thing is God's permissive will. And a lot of people confuse this, and I want to make sure you understand. This is God's will that allows things to happen as a result of sin that were not a part of his original plan. God's permissive will is when God allows the consequences of sin to happen in this world. It's not a part of his plan. It's not something that he wants, but he allows it to happen. Death, disease, disasters. People look around and say, why would God cause that to happen? God didn't cause it to happen. It wasn't His will. God's will is that we would live in peace with Him without sin. But because sin entered the world, God allows these things to happen because of man's free choice. But the beautiful thing about God's permissive will is, even though He doesn't cause it to happen, He can take those things that happen and turn it in to His will. Because the Bible says God takes all things he works all things together for good to them who are called according to his purposes. God can take the worst disaster that happens, the worst disease, that, and he can turn it for his purposes. But that's God's permissive will. The third one is most of the one that we talk about, and that's God's prescriptive will. That's God's moral will. That is what God reveals in his word. Think of the Ten Commandments, think of Jesus' commands, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Think of all the things that the Bible tells us that we need to do to be more like Christ, to know Christ. Those are God's moral wills, His prescriptive wills. His telling us what we are supposed to do, what He wants from His followers in our moral lives. Matter of fact, there are at least eight verses in the New Testament that say God's will is... God's will is all man would be saved. God's will is you be filled with the Holy Spirit. God's will is that you live a holy, sanctified life. God's will is that you do not neglect meeting together one with another. There are verse after verse that you can say, I don't know what God's will is. It's there. It spells it out. That is God's prescriptive will. Those are the things that make us more like Jesus. And then there's the fourth one, and that's the one most of us think about. That's the one, whenever you talk about God's will, that's what we want an answer to. And that is God's personal will for our lives. That is the idea that God has a personal plan and a will for every individual person. It's what most of us think about when we say, I don't know God's will for my life. Matter of fact, USA Today survey that came out a couple of years ago uh, asked people, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? 80% of them said, I want to know God's will or God's plan for my life, God's purposes for my life. And most of us in this room struggle trying to discover God's personal plan for us. Now, the good news is God does have a plan for you. That the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the world into being, has a direct plan for your life. 
Before you were born, he was laying out a blueprint for what he wanted to see happen in your life, what he wanted to see you accomplish, and how he wanted you to live. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Psalms 37, 23 says, The steps of a righteous man are ordered. They are divined by God. That means that God ordains our steps. God has a blueprint for us. Listen, if you're here this morning and you don't think that you have a purpose in this world, God's Word says you do. Every one of us in this room has a purpose because God has a plan for you. Now the not so good news to that is that God's personal will for us, that divine blueprint is always going to flow out of God's prescriptive, God's moral will for us. You see, the Bible's clear that God's will for our lives is always found in God's Word. And the way we discover God's personal plan for us, the way we discover God's blueprint, what He wants you to do, how He wants you to live, where you're supposed to go, is always conditional on how we respond to His prescriptive will. You see, what what the truth of it is, is that that blueprint for our life, God wants to show you where you're supposed to go and how you're supposed to get there, what you're supposed to become. But it always flows through whether or not we are willing to obey the prescriptive will of God as found in His Word. All of those things that make us more like Christ. Because listen, if we can't follow If we're not obedient to God's prescriptive will in the Bible, that God's will is that we be holy, God's will is that we be loving, God's will is that that we be separated apart from the world. If we can't follow those things, then why in the world would God ever tell us His personal will? Because you see, it's not until we get to the place that we become obedient to His prescriptive will as found in the Word, then we can begin to move. And that's what our passage this morning teaches Think back to Romans 12 that we just read. What did he say is God's will for every person? It's God's prescriptive will. It's what Romans 12 is. That you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We went over and over again the last three weeks that God, His desire for you apart from salvation, we're not talking about when you gave your life to God, we're talking about something as a Christian you make a choice to do is to take everything that you have and lay it on the altar to God. All of your hopes and dreams, your job, your marriage, your kids, your house, everything in your wallet, everything that you are, everything that you want to be, everything that you've done, and you say, God, it's yours. And by making it an offering, you take your hands off of it and say, God, I want you to have it. That's God's will. But then he moves to the next thing. What does he say? Not only to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice... You see, God's will for us is not only that we offer ourselves, is that when we get up, and and I didn't mention this, when we get up, he says that you need to live a life holy and pleasing unto God. Holy means separated from sin, pleasing to God, meaning that we ask God as we live, God, does this please you? And in doing that, we don't allow ourselves to be conformed to the thinking of this world. See, we don't allow our mindset to become what everybody else's opinion is. And I used the word groupthink last week. We don't allow our mind and our thoughts and our desires to be influenced just because it's popular right now in culture or just because everybody says so or because everybody is doing it. 
We don't allow the humanistic and the secularistic world around us to penetrate into what is right and what is wrong. Instead, he says, God's will is that you be transformed in your mind, the renewing of your mind through God's word. So it's simple. What is God's will for your life? Offer everything you have to him. Don't conform to the things around you and let God's word transform you. Then what happens? What does he say? Then you'll be able to accept, know, test, which is the word for discern. You'll be able to see God's got a plan. You see, once God's word gets in your heart, once you begin to make this book a part of your life and it begins to transform you, it begins to to change the way you think and it becomes a part of everything you do. Everything you think is focused on this, the way you think, the guidance for living. It all comes here, God's moral will. When that happens, you know what happens to you? It becomes easier for you to see God as he leads and he guides and he directs you. You see, when this book is your authority and you live it, and it's not just a book that you open once a week, it's something that you live every day and you strive to apply it and you let it transform the way you think into the thinking of God, all of a sudden your eyes become open to things that you didn't see before. And all of a sudden you can begin to see God leading you and God directing you. That person at the store that you walk by every day when you go in to get your coffee or you go in to fill up gas and you don't think anything about it. You start reading this word and it starts penetrating your heart and all of a sudden you begin to see them the way Jesus sees them. And they're not just the person behind the counter, but they are a hurting person. They are somebody that needs love. They are somebody that needs your time. And so instead of just walking by, all of a sudden you see them differently and you see your neighbor differently. And you see your job differently. And you see your marriage differently. And all of a sudden, when you begin to see these things differently, it becomes pretty obvious what God's calling you to do. You see, His prescriptive will, trying to be more like Jesus, all of a sudden becomes His personal will. And you start understanding where God wants you to go and what God wants you to say and how He wants you to get there. And you start offering all of that stuff you accumulated on the altar to God. All of that stuff that used to determine what success was. All of that stuff that you used to think made you who you are. And let's be honest, most of us get our identity in that stuff instead of Jesus Christ. Our identity is wrapped around how fast we are, or smart we are, or pretty we are, how much money we make, uh, what our family looks like, or what kind of car we drive. That's where we get our identity, right? Because when those things disappear, we crash. Let me see it happen all the time. Somebody has their whole identity in their job. That is who they identify as. And they lose their job, their life crashes. But you see, when we find our identity in Jesus Christ, what matters to me, who, what makes me who I am is because Jesus and what God says about me. Not what some person says about me. Not what some job tells me. Not what car I drive or house I live in. But you see, when you take all of those things that you used to get your identity from and you give it to God, it leaves a hole in your heart. And you know who fills it? The Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not you getting more of God. You've got all you need. It's God getting more of you. And the more God gets of you and the Holy Spirit starts filling you, you know what happens? His voice becomes louder. You start hearing him. 
You start understanding. He starts prompting you. And things that you never heard before because all that other junk was drowning it out all of a sudden becomes loud and clear. Give that person a hug. Tell them that you love them. Give them some money. Go on that mission trip. Volunteer to serve. Whatever it is, all of a sudden, and you say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. He's screaming it to your spirit. You just can't hear him because you haven't given all the stuff that's drowning him out on the altar to God. You know, I love to fish. I, I'm a, um, I grew up fishing. I grew up in Texas fishing, bass fishing. But that's where I grew up. I grew up going saltwater fishing in the Gulf. When I moved to the mountains, when I moved to Chattanooga and then moved here, I began to love fly fishing. I began to love the idea of going out on a mountain stream, and it's really the only getaway. But I love mountain streams. I love going fly fishing. And, and, and the thing about most of the mountain streams here is they're, they're, they're very narrow and they're small, and the fish are real skittish. And people always ask me, what's the most important thing that you take when you fish? What's the most important piece of equipment that you have? And you could say, well, it's this reel or this rod or this size rod or it's this size line or maybe it's this secret fly, but that's not what I answer. And everybody's always surprised. The one thing I never forget when I go fishing, or if I do forget it, I don't go fishing, I go home to get it, is my polarized glasses. Have you ever used polarized sunglasses? You ever looked at water without sunglasses and then put polarized glasses on? It's a whole new world. You see, when you look without it, it's just a river, and all you can see is the glare and the ripples, and maybe you can see a few inches below the surface. But you put those glasses on, and it unlocks everything. I can see rocks, and I can see fish over there, and I can see through the glare, and I can see holes that I may fall into if I walk into the river. And so those glasses change everything. Because if I go fishing without those glasses, I'm just throwing a line in the water, blindly fishing. That's the way God's prescriptive will is for our lives. When you begin to allow this book to become a part of you, all of a sudden you begin to see things that you never knew were there. It changes everything. And your eyes are open, just like you put on a pair of polarized glasses, to things that you never knew were around. That becomes God's will for our lives, His personal will, His good will. Another thing this passage tells us that's very important is that the way that we discover God's will is through living. Did you see he said, then you will be able to test and approve. The way you find, the way your eyes are opened is through living. God doesn't want you to cloister yourself away from the world and, and hope that you hear what he wants you to do. He wants you to live. Go and begin to apply these prescriptive truths to your life and seek to get rid of sin and seek holiness and walk in grace and mercy and love. The Bible says the two things that we're supposed to do, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you say, those are the two things I'm going to seek to live. As you're living, as you're doing those things, all of a sudden God begins to speak to you about other things. And you can begin to test. Hey, Maybe that's what God's telling me to do. Hey, maybe God wants me to teach here. Maybe God wants me to surrender to this. Have you ever tried to move a slow-moving car and turn it? Because you could never get it fast enough to turn. Because you're, you're gripping in there. You're going faster, faster. And, you know, it's not turning. Why? Because the wheels weren't made to turn while it's going slow or moving still. They were made to turn when you're going fast. That's why if you go too fast and you barely touch the wheel, they really turn. 
And you see, the same is true for God's will for your life. That's what he's saying. If you're going slow and you're scared and you're saying, God, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. God, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. It is so hard for God to get you to turn left or turn right or go this way because you're saying, I, I, I don't know. But as you live your life every day, God's going to tell you, get rid of that, get rid of this, get rid of And all of a sudden you look up and there is a blueprint and you're living. Now listen, church. I wish I could tell you it was easy. I said it was simple to understand. I didn't say it was easy. I wish I could tell you that God spoke in an audible voice. When I tell people God spoke to me, they're like, what? How? He didn't speak in an audible voice. There's not, there's not a burning bush. There's not a big sign that you're living, and all of a sudden an arrow appears and says, ding, 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 here. I wish all of a sudden if God had a blueprint for my life, I wish God would just say, Rusty, here, here it is. Here's where you're going. But he doesn't do it that way. You know, what, you know what living and walking and approving and testing God's will is? It's like driving a car at night with headlights. All you can see is right in front of you. But if you keep going, more is revealed and more is revealed and more is revealed. See, the reason God doesn't show us a sign or give us a burning bush is he's trying to teach you faith. Trying to teach you to trust him. Because you see, if he says, I seek holiness, that he's going to reveal his will, and, and I start doing it, all of a sudden, I start seeing things. He says, now you can trust me more. Now you can trust me more. You trust me with your wallet. You trust me with your, your marriage. You trust me with your kids. Do you trust me at work? Because you see, he's trying to get you to step out on faith and learn to trust him more. And as you do that, as you learn to trust him, all of a sudden God's will not only becomes obvious, it becomes easy. You see, discovering God's will for your life is not hard. Being obedient to God's will is hard. But Paul closes by reminding us of three things, and I'm going to close with this, about God's will. Why should we do it? Why is it important? Because God says these three things. God's will is always good, it's always pleasing, and it's always perfect. Now, is he talking about his prescriptive will, the moral will, his founding it? Yes. But he's also talking about his personal will for your life. He says it's always good. Do you know what that means? That means when you begin to obey God, it will always lead to what is best for your life. God will never lead you to something that is not what is best for you. may not feel good for the moment, may not feel good for a season, may not even understand it, but it is always what is best for us. I heard someone define God's will. He said it's exactly what we would choose for our own lives if we had enough common sense to know it. Because God's will is always good. Because you see what happens, and, and listen, stay with me. When our mind is transformed by the word of God, all of a sudden this book is no longer a list of rules. It's no longer about God not wanting me to have fun. Do you know what it becomes? It becomes a book of protection. It becomes guardrails that keep me out of the gutters of life. It becomes a way that I can begin to experience God. It's good. Those rules aren't, aren't there to, to make me lose out or miss out or not. They're there so that I can experience God. 
And it's always good. I remember the first time as an adult, I, I got on a jet ski. And I was getting on a jet ski, and, and I thought I knew how to do it. You know, I'd ridden motorcycles and all that kind of stuff. And I got on the jet ski, and the guy that was instructing us, he said, here, you got to put a life jacket on. It was big, bulky. I said, listen, chicks are not going to take the life jacket. I mean, let's just be honest. I, I'm doing this to look cool. I'm going to go out here and cut some circles and jump some wakes. And all those people on the beach are going to see me. And they're going to like, look at that guy. The big orange thing is not going to help that. I told the guy, I said, listen, I don't need a lifeguard. I'm a certified life safety instructor. I've taken the class. I teach people how to be lifeguards. And he began to go over all the people that know how to swim very well that drowned in boating accidents because they don't have a life jacket. Then he said something that stuck with me. He said, listen... The life jacket is not there to protect you for what you see and know. It's there to protect you for what you don't see and what you don't know can happen. That's the way God's Word is. You see, we think it's there to to keep us from doing something. No, it's there to protect you. It's good. But not only that, as he said, it's pleasing. It's good and pleasing. Pleasing to who? Not God, because of course it's pleasing to God. It's His will. It's going to be pleasing. Who's He mean it's pleasing for? It's pleasing for you. Because you see, when I begin to live God's way for my life, when I begin to apply these things, all of a sudden I get to experience life the way it was meant to be lived. You see, not only are those things guardrails to keep me from trouble, but they're also a way that I can experience all that God has for me. Because that's, what this, that's why Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have life to the fullest. Life more abundant. You know what that life more abundant is? That is discovering yourself in the middle of doing what God's called you to do. And, and all of a sudden, you're a better person and you're a better husband and, and you're a better dad and you're a better teacher or worker or friend. And all of a sudden, everything begins to change around you. Why? Because you are applying God's truth and God's principles to every area. And guess what happens? It's pleasing. You start saying, it's pretty good. This is the way it's supposed to be. Good, pleasing, and the last thing he says is it's perfect. Now in the Bible, there are three words, three Greek words for perfect. The first one means accurate, means correct. The second one means a well-fitted end. It's kind of like the second one describes a puzzle piece that fits. It's perfect. It's complete, right? But the third one is the word that Paul uses here, and it's teleos for perfect. You know what that means? That means complete, finished. It's the same word used to describe Jesus as a man. It said he completed all that was required of being a man. He was the perfect man. So you know what Paul is using by saying perfect here? He's saying that when you do the will of God, you'll discover that there is nothing lacking in this life. I want you to let that sink in. He said if you make your goal to be obedient to God and to listen to His Word and follow His will and do what He's asking you to do, when you get to the end of your life and you look back, there will be no regrets because it will have been perfect. It will have been a life lived well. It will have been all that God asked you to do. 
But you see, the negative of that is some of us are going to get to the end of our lives or get older in our lives and begin to look back and see where we said, my will, God, not thy will, and it's going to be filled with regret. You see, what Paul wants us to understand this morning is that God does have a perfect, pleasing, good will for you. And when you begin to allow His Word to transform you, you begin to prove it. You begin to live it out and others see it. And the more you live it out, the more it's revealed. The more you allow it to become a part of you, the more it becomes a part of everything you do. You see, he says, by following God's will, I don't miss out on anything. See, the Bible's clear. God's will is easily known and it's easily found. So the question for you this morning is not, do you know God's will for your life? Do you know God's plan for your life? The question you need to answer this morning is, are you doing it? And if not, why not? If you know what he's calling you to do, and it's good, and it's pleasant, and it's perfect, why are you not doing it? One of my friends in college went into architecture. He designs houses. And I remember him telling us that one of the most frustrating things about designing houses is that when people come to him wanting them to design a house for them, they already have in their own mind exactly what they want. You see, he says, they're not coming to me for me to design it, for me to use my expertise. They're coming to me wanting me to give a stamp of approval on their plans. And he said, and the problem with that is then I spend half of my time trying to explain to them why their plans didn't work or why this won't fit there. Or from experience, I know this is not the best way to do it. And you see, that's the way many of us live our lives, seeking God's will. We come to church and, and we're earnest and we pray for wisdom and we pray for guidance and we pray for direction. But really in our hearts, we've already decided what we're going to do. We've already decided what direction we're going to take. We've already decided what plans we should follow. And we get through and we just want God's stamp of approval on our plans. And that's not the way it works. And we could probably spend all afternoon with many of you in this room giving testimonies to what happens when you say, my will, not thine. Because it's not good, it's not pleasing, and it's not perfect. See, this morning, God's looking for you to be obedient. He's looking for you just to simply say yes. And it starts with you agreeing. He's got a plan. He's got a plan. Whose plan would you rather follow? Your neighbors, your college professors, the one you drew up when you were in fourth grade? Your parents planned for you? Or would you rather follow the one who knows your tomorrow as clear as he sees your today? Let's pray.